So Nick, my oral boards are nearly upon me. I'm going to be taking them in December. Man, Faye, I am feeling kind of lucky because mine are after yours in January, um, but the heat is starting to get turned up. How are you studying? So one of the ways that I'm studying um, is by going onto the OBG project and taking a look at their most up-to-date information to make sure that I am studied up on GYN because I don't practice GYN anymore. I'm going back through my bookshelf articles to take a look at some of those high yield topics from GYN that I just don't remember. Um, but they've also got a ton of great other information regarding obstetrics, certainly, um, but then even just professionalism things um, and life as a physician. Yeah, absolutely. And so you don't need to just be studying for your oral boards to appreciate and use OBG Project. You can also use it if you are a resident or an attending and you're just studying up to make sure that you are practicing um, good OBGYN. You can also join us to get OBG first and make your very own bookshelf and go back to those resources that you like. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can actually sign up for one whole year free. Head on over to our website, check out the sidebar, figure out how you can get OBG first for a whole year, absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. coffee. Hey, today we are diving into the wonderful world, I guess you might say, of fecal incontinence. I feel like diving, wonderful, and fecal incontinence don't belong in the same sentence, Nick. No, I don't think they do either, but um, we're still talking about it today. So what are our learning objectives? So today we're going to define fecal incontinence and review its prevalence and its risk factors. We are going to also discuss the common causes of fecal incontinence and review evaluation and management for it. We also will talk briefly about when to refer. To follow along, you can look at Practice Bulletin 210, Fecal Incontinence. All right, Nick, so as you said in your own words, let's dive right in. What is fecal incontinence? To define fecal incontinence, it's really part of a larger spectrum of things called accidental bowel leakage, where there's loss of normal control of the bowels. The other aspect besides fecal incontinence that you could think of is leakage of stool and gas, or otherwise known as anal incontinence. Fecal incontinence specifically refers to leakage of stool. And there's actually a further definition from the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey. Um, speaking of fecal incontinence as loss of solid or liquid stool or mucus at least once in the previous 30 days. According to that survey, it's actually probably a lot more common than you'd think. It has an 8.3% prevalence amongst 4,300 community dwelling adults. Um, prevalence certainly increases with age, though. Again, that could go from you know only maybe a 2.5% prevalence to patients in their 20s um, to over 15% for adults 70 and older. Though probably like lots of other things in the world of incontinence, this is an underestimate since 75 to 80% of individuals who have fecal incontinence don't ultimately seek help or report the issues to their healthcare providers. Some risk factors to be aware of with respect to fecal incontinence can include things like loose or watery stools, an increased frequency of stools um, defined specifically as more than 21 stools a week. I don't know how you get to that level of regularity um, specifically, though that sounds terrifying at the same time. Um, <laughs> 
Having two or more chronic illnesses is also a risk factor. Um, and then finally, some other things that you can think about or elicit with history include a history of urinary incontinence, patients who are obese, patients who are smoking, as we already talked about, elderly age, and alongside that decreasing physical activity, um, patients who have a history of anal intercourse or history of an obstetric anal sphincter injury or any history of pelvic radiation. So again, a number of different risk factors there to try and elicit in getting your patients to share this problem with you. Faye, let's move from there and actually talk about some causes of fecal incontinence. Sure. So I like to think about these causes in terms of neurologic versus non-neurologic. The neurological causes, I think, you know, we can all kind of think of some. So those would be things like spinal cord injuries or spina bifida and, of course, things like a stroke. The non-neurological causes are actually more common in women, and usually it's after something like you said, um, Nick, an obstetric anal sphincter injury, and this may occur even remote from delivery. Medication use can also cause it, and some things that the ACOG practice bulletin lists are things like diarrheal diseases, IBD, for example, uh, fistulas, so you know where you have intermittent loss of stool inflatus from the vagina, perineum, or maybe even the bladder. Other causes are things like severe constipation that leads to overflow, rectal prolapse, and things like systemic diseases, so like Parkinson's or diabetes or multiple sclerosis and things like that. The reason we care about fecal incontinence is that it really does have a huge effect on the quality of life of our patients. Um, It can cause things like depression, social isolation, shame, and embarrassment, and also it can worsen sexual function. So it's super important that we identify fecal incontinence in our patients and then discuss with them how to treat it. So speaking of which, Nick, what do we do to evaluate our patients for fecal incontinence? So first step is to screen. Um, As we already mentioned, Faye, a lot of patients don't volunteer this willingly, so it's almost incumbent upon us really to start asking our patients about it and make sure that they feel comfortable bringing this up. ACOG states in particular that women with risk factors should be screened because, again, of the reluctancy to disclose. Um, Women with other pelvic floor disorders should also be screened. And then we already talked about a number of those risk factors, though things, again, to remember include age over 50, residence in a nursing home, prior obstetric anal sphincter injury, history of pelvic radiation or anal intercourse, presence of urinary incontinence, chronic diarrhea, diabetes, obesity, rectal urgency symptoms. Again, a lot of things that are common complaints in the office um, or just are you know common for patients to have like diabetes and obesity um, where we really should just ask about it routinely. So after screening, you should move on to the history and physical, right? That's the place where we always start with an evaluation. And with your history in particular, you want to ask about those risk factors, um, particularly modifiable things like obesity, diabetes, smoking, and anal sex, and other uh, and medications that can cause loose stools. You also want to screen for underlying neurologic disorders or symptoms of neurologic disorders. Again, those things like Parkinson's that Faye mentioned earlier. In terms of once you have the history in front of you, you want to talk about symptoms next. And other than just fecal leakage, there's actually a lot to this that can help you sort of differentiate what the underlying causes and then treatments might be. Um, You want to ask about what kind of leakage is going on. Is it solid? Is it liquid? Is it gas? Is it mucus? Is it some combination? You know, the timing and frequency of stools we already mentioned is important. The severity or the volume of loss of stool is also important. 
You want to inquire about if there's any sense of urgency. Um, and then finally, talking about effects on the patient's own life and how this may be hindering them in some ways. There are actually a few validated surveys that we can include the names of on the website with respect to evaluating the severity and quality of life effects on fecal incontinence. And then finally, we move to that physical exam. Um, physical exam, again, as encompassing in a general obstetric and gynecologic exam, you want to do a vaginal exam, an exam of the perineal area, um, and then a rectal exam as well, particularly in patients who have had prior anal sphincter injury or trauma. There's a sign with this exam that I didn't realize was the name of a sign before reading through this bulletin, but something called the dovetail sign, which is the loss of puckering around the anus anteriorly. You can also perform the digital rectal exam. I know that's not anybody's favorite exam to perform. Sensitivity and specificity is overall low for it, admittedly for detection of complete anal sphincter disruption, but again, can give you some sense over whether there's an issue with tone pointing you towards those neurologic disorders. And then finally, as part of sort of your testing spectrum and something you can do point of care in the office if you have experience, is consideration for endoanal ultrasonography. Finally, let's get into some tests. Anal sphincter imaging, defecography, or anorectal manometry is, again, not necessarily recommended for routine evaluation. But if an anatomic defect or dysfunction is suspected, or if your clinical exam is inconclusive, again, you can refer for some of this ancillary testing. Urogynecology and colorectal surgery are your friends in terms of further evaluation if you're not certain in your clinic um, or just need somebody to guide testing further. They have a lot of experience with this in particular um, and are probably going to be your friends as well in terms of the ultimate management of this too. So Faye, speaking of, let's stop me talking and think about management. Yeah, so just like anything in OBGYN, there's always going to be medical versus surgical management. So in terms of medical management, I guess before we even talk about any type of management, treating fecal incontinence is going to be a multidisciplinary approach. We really should consider getting our friends in physical therapy, especially those pelvic floor physical therapists involved, and consider co-management with urogynecology and even gastroenterology or colorectal surgery, as you mentioned before, Nick. So in terms of medications and ways to treat fecal incontinence through medications, remember that loose stools themselves, while they don't cause fecal incontinence, can certainly make it worse and be a risk factor for fecal incontinence. So one thing to try is to use something to bulk up the stool, so something like fiber supplementation or changing around someone's diet or even bowel scheduling. Again, this is not going to necessarily completely fix someone's fecal incontinence, but could potentially better their symptoms for a little while. The other things that we can consider are things like lifestyle management, and this should always be offered in conjunction with everything else. So how do we you know, improve our patients' lives a little bit while we're trying to figure out what we need to do or before they start medication or even before they go get surgery, you can consider things like wearing pads or diapers or briefs so that the patients would be able to, um, you know, go on with their life and hopefully be able to complete their daily tasks without embarrassment um, or, you know, needing to bring a change of clothes. The other thing that is mentioned in the practice bulletin and I'll bring up is something like an anal plug, but it's not super effective, and about 51% of people who have used an anal plug report some kind of adverse event, things like urgency or irritation or pain or soreness. So, you know, definitely something to consider. 
In terms of the effectiveness of non-surgical treatments, so we know that these medical and lifestyle managements are associated with modest short-term efficacy, and they overall have a low risk of adverse events, so they really should be recommended for initial management unless there is evidence of a fistula or rectal prolapse on exam, and that really should be a surgical management. Many people who get pelvic floor PT, medications, and lifestyle management will actually receive some form of benefit, but there is unfortunately lacking evidence for effectiveness of treatment beyond six months. That's kind of all I have to say about, you know, medical management and lifestyle management, Nick. So let's go into surgery. What kind of surgeries can we perform for these patients? Yeah, there's a couple of options. The first that we'll talk about actually isn't really surgery, but it's a kind of in-between, a procedure, if you will. And those are anal sphincter bulking agents. So you may have been exposed to some of these in urogynecology for urethral bulking, and it's kind of like a similar principle overall. Injecting something like dextranomer and stabilized hyaluronic acid, a silicon biomaterial, or carbon-coated beads um, to, again, bulk up the anal sphincter. This may be effective in decreasing fecal incontinence episodes, again, at up to that six-month time period. Moving forward to talk about surgery in the traditional sense, surgeries are again not considered first-line therapy unless it's for those two indications Faye mentioned earlier, someone who has a fistula or someone who has rectal prolapse. Surgeries, again, are proven to only provide short-term improvement and have more complications overall than medical treatments or lifestyle modifications. A lot of times the thought is that if a patient fails that more conservative treatment, then you might move on to surgery because you're willing to accept that bigger risk. And again, surgery generally is going to ultimately become the territory of urogynecology um, or colorectal surgery or some other qualified specialist in order to do that. Kind of in thinking about surgery, probably what you may have been exposed to through a urogyne rotation might have be an anal sphincter repair. Sphincteroplasty can be considered in patients who have anal sphincter disruption, um, as well as those fecal incontinence symptoms who have failed conservative treatment previously. You have probably heard of, or at least considered, end-to-end versus overlapping sphincteroplasty, um, ringing kind of some bells about fourth-degree tears too, um, and how you repair those. Most studies have found similar outcomes with end-to-end versus overlapping sphincteroplasties. There is some evidence that has shown there can be significant deterioration in fecal incontinence over time after either type of repair, though, with up to 50% of women reporting fecal incontinence symptoms recurring 5 to 10 years after their repair. The most common adverse effect, though, of this surgery is a wound infection, um, which is a terrible place to get a wound infection, but can be 6 to 35% of cases, depending on the data that you read. We won't talk about other surgeries here. They're probably not going to be on the CREOGS, but just to say them out loud, there are radiofrequency anal sphincter remodeling surgeries, gracilis muscle transpositions, and diverting colostomies. But again, we wouldn't anticipate those to be on CREOGS or part of your routine thought process and management. The last treatment that we'll make mention of today is neuromodulation. Again, through urogyne or colorectal surgery rotation once upon a time, you may have been exposed to sacral nerve stimulation, and this is also possible for accidental bowel leakage. Again, you're generally doing a procedure to implant a wire electrode, in this case near the third sacral nerve root, and you're doing an initial test period. And if it's found to be effective for the patient during that test period, then a permanent battery is 
subsequently attached to that wire electrode. A 2013 systematic review of this demonstrated a 63% success rate, um, with success defined as a 50% or greater reduction in fecal incontinence. Um, this was in the short term, though, at less than a year. Um, the success deteriorated slightly in the medium term to 58% in that 17 to 36 month range, and 54% in the longer term, 44 to 118 months. Um, though again, with accidental bowel leakage, that is something else to consider um, that may be less surgery than a sphincteroplasty. All right, Faye, I think that does it for fecal incontinence. Why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So we first started talking off about the definition of fecal incontinence, which is part of the larger category of accidental bowel leakage, which also encompasses leakage of gas. Specifically, the um, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey defined it as the loss of solid or liquid stool or mucus at least once in the previous 30 days. Um, fecal incontinence is actually more common than we think it is. It's about 8.3% prevalence in their survey, and it's likely underreported, so it might be even higher than that. There are many risk factors, including things like having looser watery stools, increased frequency of stools, two or more chronic illnesses, and other things like history of oasis, history of pelvic radiation, and urinary incontinence. The causes of fecal incontinence can broadly be broken down into neurological and non-neurological etiologies. Neurological things you can think about are spinal cord injuries, spina bifida, strokes. Non-neurologic causes are really varied um, and can range from diarrheal disease, IBD, fistula, um, all the way down to obstetric anal sphincter injury and systemic diseases like Parkinson's, diabetes, and MS. The reason that we care about fecal incontinence is that it has a huge effect on the quality of life of our patients, and really we should be screening our patients who have risk factors. We can use things like just asking the patient specifically about them, and there are actually a few validated surveys asking about um, fecal incontinence severity as well as quality of life, and we should assess patients by asking about things like underlying neurological disorders and other modifiable risk factors. Finally, we should talk to them about their symptoms that they're having in terms of type of leakage, timing, frequency, severity, um, and how it's affecting their life. In terms of physical exam, we should do a vaginal exam, an exam of the perineal area, and also a rectal exam to look for things like the dovetail sign. We also can do things like a digital rectal exam and also consider endoanal ultrasonography. The management and treatment of fecal incontinence can break down broadly again into medical and surgical options. Medical options are generally conservative and multidisciplinary in approach, considering things like pelvic floor PT, management alongside urogynecology or gastroenterology, and then medications can do things like stool bulking agents, um, lifestyle management, wearing pads, diapers, or briefs. Important to note, though, that these non-surgical treatments are generally associated with only modest short-term efficacy um, with low risk of adverse events. Um, they lack effectiveness beyond six months, at least as the evidence stands currently. In terms of surgeries, there are things like anal sphincter bulking agents. We can also consider things like anal sphincter repair in patients who have anal sphincter disruption. And also we can consider things like neuromodulation with sacral nerve stimulation. Other surgeries that can be done include things like radiofrequency anal sphincter remodeling, gracilis muscle transposition, and diverting colostomy, but clearly these are not really performed by the general OBGYN. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to your favorite podcatcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is. Give us a five-star rating interview. You can also find us on social media on Twitter at CreeObserverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreeObserverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreeObserverCoffee. Give us some love and we may give you a shout out or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, CreeObserverCoffee.com. And if you have a comment for us or a suggestion for another episode, or just want to give us a shout out, email us CreeObserverCoffee at gmail.com. 